I came in a little after five this evening and was sitting here on the front pew in this auditorium by myself for a few minutes and the choir was rehearsing and that was one of the great blessings of my day to have those few minutes to hear the choir and um, I was really, really impressed with the quality of voice and music that I was hearing during those few moments. So thank you, choir members, and thank you, Brother David. I was telling David and Debbie at lunchtime that I love I love the mix of music here at Meadowbrook and um, the style of worship, and I'm blessed every time I'm here and thankful to God for you. I invite you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 33. I think this morning I was at Abraham on Mount Sinai. <laughs> uh, it really scares me when I do things like that. And I, I caught that one. I heard it a few seconds after I said it. But I have these fears that there are times I do such things and I don't catch it. And I wonder what people are thinking. I started pastoring when I was 19 when I was 21, I was pastoring um, a sizable church for a kid that age and a good congregation. I was preaching away one Sunday morning, and the, uh, I was preaching on Jonah. And uh, I noticed uh, that there were t- two or three or four people kind of, kind of a smirky grin, kind of like, you know, that uh-oh kind of thing. Well... I don't want to embarrass myself or you, but I made sure I stayed behind the pulpit from that point on. I didn't know what they were seeing or thinking. Well, I kept preaching, and and, that, and two or three of them just started. I mean, they were so tickled. They, you could see their shoulders going up and down, you know. And, and then then it was more than I could take. But I, I was pressing on. And I was just going to town on Jonah. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, I gave it a good thrust, you know, good strong point, and I said, Jonah was in the welly of the bell. <laughs> and I'd been saying, in the welly of the bell, that whole sermon, and didn't have enough sense to know it. So, um, please forgive me. Then it was youth, tonight it's age, so I have excuses. Well, what I want to do this this evening is take a passage of Scripture that deals with an unusual aspect, an unusual time of God in relationship to His people. And I'm I'm just going to set the stage, then we're going to read, because we do need to read the passage to get the full meaning of it. And by the way, if I could just say, kind of parenthetically and quickly, it's it's a bit of a challenge for a pastor or a Bible teacher to do what I'm going to do tonight, to reach into to a passage that's so vast and pull out one part of it because you need a kind of a working knowledge of several pages before we even get here and I'm trusting that you have that uh, but I can't I, I wouldn't keep you here long enough to to do the runway to this one so uh, we're going to just jump right in but what what we're looking at here is God reaching a point in time a place in his relationship with his people that that he's the way the text reads, he's almost on the verge of being done with them. And um, he, he says, I'm, I'm going to keep my promise to you. And I'm getting some echo, I think, maybe from these monitors. I don't need that if we can take it down. 
Uh, I want you to hear me. I don't need to hear anything else. Uh, but anyway, here we go. Is it monitors, David? Can you tell? I'm I'm getting. You don't hear anything. You hear the? Is it the monitors? If we could just have the monitors off, that 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 always puts me off balance. I can't. I don't know if I just said it or I'm, I'm saying it or if I'm supposed to say it. So, um, I tell you what, let's do. Let's read the scripture. I think that would be the best thing to do. And it's it's a longer passage than I normally read, but we need to do it. Okay? Are you all right with that? Really doesn't matter. We're going to read the the passage anyway. <laughs> Exodus 33, then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. So God is remembering his promise. That's the first thing we see. God is remembering his promise. And he said, I will send my angel. And by the way, this is a phrase that typically refers to the Lord Jesus himself. My angel, the angel of the Lord, is not just any angel. It is the Lord. And I will send my angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. And somebody said, and the termites. Verse 3, he says, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 3 is critical. Verse 4, and when the people heard these grave tidings, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And the Lord said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people, I, I, I could come up into your midst and in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And so it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he uh, and he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. This is the word of God. Tonight, I want to take a few moments to just talk about how to know the presence of God. And it really is based against this negative backdrop of the fact that God is saying to the to to his people, I'm going to keep my promise and I'm going to send you into the land. I, I'm a promise keeping God, but I'm not going to be with you. I'm not going to go with you. And sometimes I, I think when I think about this passage, I think we have a picture of people here who have exhausted, seemingly exhausted the patience of God. I wonder if you've ever felt that you've exhausted the patience of God. 
just a few days ago, a week or so ago, in my own one of my own private and personal times with God, I was I began thinking about this in my own life, and and I and it seems like it's a common thread for me in my quiet time, in my prayer time, in my commune, communion with the Lord that I'm reminded of this of how how patient He is with me. Those of us who are older, and there are several of those of us who are older in this room. And I think you would agree with me that as we get older, we, we, we understand more and more and better and better and clearer and clearer that our God is indeed a patient God. Though our sins are many, His mercy, His mercy is more. His mercy is more. And sometimes we feel that we tax the patience of God. If anybody was on the verge of doing that, we find it right here. Go to the land that's flowing with milk and honey. I promised it to you. It is in the covenant. I'll keep my promise, but I will not go up with you. And the question comes, why would God say such a thing to his people? Why would he say, I'm not going to go with you? Well, the answer is there. You are a stiff-necked people. What does it say of them? They are stiff-necked people. They are rebellious. They are disobedient. They are determined to have their own way. What has preceded the verses that we're looking at tonight? What comes before Exodus chapter 33? Exodus chapter 32. And you remember in Exodus chapter 31 that Moses was on Mount Sinai. God was speaking to Moses. He was receiving the law. He was receiving the blueprint for how the children of Israel were to live. Instructions had been given that they might put a tent in the center of the camp, that it might in time become the tabernacle. But that tent would be the tent of meeting, a place where God, that would symbolize the presence of God among his people. But the people became impatient with Moses and impatient with God. And they said, we don't know where Moses is. He's been gone a long time. We don't know when he's going to come back. We need to do something about this. We need a God. So they decided to make their own God. They took their gold and Aaron and others formed that gold into a golden calf. And they began to worship the golden calf. And they began to say, this is our God and he will lead us and he will guide us and he will direct us. I've never understood how thinking people, and I'm talking about people in various parts of the world today, not only in Bible times, but in our times, who think that they can craft some image with their own hands, that they can make what they will call an idol or a god with their own hands, something that they can put wherever they want it to be, move it place to place, do with it what they want, something that cannot even stand on its own unless it's stood up by the person who has it in hand, can say that this is my God. Where does that kind of thinking come from? I don't know about you, but I don't want a God that I can shape and craft with my own hands, that I can determine what he does and where he is and what his capacity is. We need a God bigger than that. And ladies and gentlemen, we have a God that's bigger than that. We have a God that is sovereign over all, supreme over all, a God who is worthy of our praise and our worship and our adoration. God's angry with his people. He was disappointed with his people. It is possible to be in a relationship with God as these people were and yet find ourselves where our fellowship with God, their relationship is intact. It's the fellowship that's being stressed and stressed severely right now. I think James was thinking something along these lines when he wrote his epistle and he said, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. 
Now the assumption in that very sentence is, a, is an assumption that there is distance between a person and God, a Christian and God. Draw near to God. That's just, there's an assumption there that that person is not near God. Why isn't he near God? He's drifted away. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. In that New Testament context, James gives us the means to get back. He says, cleanse your hands. He starts with the outward life. The hands are always a symbol of the activities and the behaviors and the actions of life. The hands, cleanse your hands. Then in the verse he says, goes on, he says, and purify your hearts. That represents the inner life. So James is saying if a person wants to bridge the gap of a broken fellowship with God or a damaged fellowship with God, he starts with his heart, have a pure heart, have our hands, have clean hands, clean up the outside, clean up the inside, clean up the heart. And then he goes on to say, lament and weep and mourn. That is uh, an expression which simply means that we're to be sorrowful, mournful, repentant of our sin. When I was a young person coming along, and I I didn't grow up in a Christian family and wasn't in church very much when I was a kid, but I did go from time to time. My grandmother, my maternal mother, grandmother, who had a huge impact on me spiritually, lived in Boaz, and I I grew up in Arab, and from time to time, uh, in fact, frequently we would visit grandparents and and I would stay with her as much as I could. I loved my grandmother. I was the oldest born grandchild and, and uh, loved to be with my grandmother. She'd take me to church and I, would, um, I enjoyed going to church. She taught me a love for church and a love for God. But I can remember in the context of those times. Now this might be some, somewhat culturally in Sand Mountain. I know some people would say that. I think it's far more than that. But I can still remember seeing people broken in the altar and weeping over their sins. I can hear the crying. As a child, I can still remember hearing the crying, the weeping, the wailing of people in the altar. And seeing people go down and kneel by them and pray. And sometimes I'd hear people talk about praying it through, staying with God, holding on to the horns of the altar until God does his work in you. I'm going to tell you something. I don't hear much crying in church anymore. I don't hear much mourning in church anymore. I don't hear much repenting in church anymore. I don't hear much crying out because of our damaged relationship with God. Have we lost our understanding of the severity of the insult of God to to God to be disobedient people as these people were in Exodus 33? We can look at this passage tonight and see that even God in his mercy gives steps back to a right relationship with him. Now this this is the part that I'm uh, looking forward to sharing with you and it really is the meat of the sermon. I, th- I can't remember, there are five or six, but those of you who write things down, and I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, write things down, but I believe some of the things said tonight would be helpful to all of us in working our way back to God. Because immediately what happened here when we see this, the, the Lord said, I'm not going to go with you. And verse, that's verse 3 and verse 4. And when the people heard this, uh, these grave tidings, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. Now those ornaments that they put on and the ornaments that they had on that they were told to take off were, came out of Egypt. That, this, this is part of the jewelry and the paraphernalia, all of the stuff they brought out of Egypt. And they took a lot of stuff out of Egypt, two and a half million Jews making that exodus. And they left with a bounty. And here they have all of these um, 
ornaments that symbolize uh, the the land of death, the land of bondage, the land of lostness, to use Christian terminology. And um, so when they heard these things, they mourned no one put on his ornaments. And then in verse 5 and 6, uh, Moses said, take off your ornaments. So the Lord said, take off your ornaments. In verse 6, so the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. Now here's the first step in getting right with God. If, if, we've, if we've pushed God's patience, if we have insulted him by making golden calves and trying to replace him with some man-made idol, if we are in living a life of determined disobedience to God, and then we begin to reap the consequences of that, and we ask ourselves, how do we get back to God? Here's step number one. These people took their sin seriously. They took their sin seriously. They knew that they were in a pickle. They knew they had offended the Almighty. They knew when God said, I'm not going to go with you, they knew what it meant to have to wander into and to pilgrimage into that promised land without the presence and the power and the provision of God. And they took their sin seriously. When the people heard this distressing and disastrous news, they began to mourn, they began to repent. They repented. They put off their ornaments that represented the old life. They surrendered. They laid down the ornaments, these expensive ornaments. And then they chose God. They drew near to Him. But they took sin seriously. I would say to any person, whether I was sitting in my room, my office, or if I was sitting with you on a pew here or talking to you from this pulpit as I am tonight, if anybody said to me, I don't feel as close to God As I used to, I'm not as close to God as I used to be. I know my relationship to Him is not where it ought to be. My first comment to you is you need to deal with whatever sin is in your life that's damaging your relationship to Him. You need to take seriously the thing that is affecting a right relationship with God. And I'm not sure we do take seriously that thing which damages our relationship with God. I can't put my finger on it in your life, but the Holy Spirit will, and He does. So we take, must take our sin seriously. Number two, we must get alone with God. Starting in verse 7 and into verse 8, we see that Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp. You see, that tent was supposed to be inside the camp. It was supposed to be in the center of the people. It was to be a, a symbol of the place where people could meet God. But Moses moved it outside the camp. Because God, the people are no longer worthy to have God in a central place in their lives. But they, if they wanted to meet God, they had to go to where the tent was. They had to go out there where Moses was. They had to go to where the tent was. They, they had to go to that place to be alone with God. What does this teach us about the presence of God? It teaches us that if we really, really want right relationship, good fellowship with God, then we must be willing to spend time in His presence and we must make the effort to get into the presence of God. I don't know where you are in this regard tonight, but I tell you, we cannot live the Christian life apart from having disciplined daily time with our Lord. 
Jesus spent time alone with his Father. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, listen to these words regarding our Savior. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went out into a solitary place where he prayed. And the language of this verse, the Greek people tell us that the language of this verse, very early in the morning while it was dark, Jesus got up and left his house, went out into a solitary place, and there he prayed. And the grammar of the Greek implies that this was his custom. This was his custom. And the question comes to my mind, if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, needed a disciplined quiet time, time with his Father on a daily basis, how much more do you and I need time with our Heavenly Father? We lose the sense of God's presence when we're always in a crowd of people. I'm a, I'm, I'm a preacher. I love corporate worship. I love, I love what we did this morning. I've enjoyed and been blessed by what we've done tonight. But I'll tell anybody that my greatest worship experiences are not in church. My greatest worship experiences is just when I'm just, it's just me and God. Part of that's because I can't carry a tune in a bucket and I get to sing when I'm in church by myself. (laughs) I'm being a bit facetious there, just a little bit, but it's true. But your individual private encounter with God cannot be replaced by corporate gathering as we've done. As wonderful it is as it is to be here tonight, we must have time alone with God. We have to pull away from the crowd. We have to get away from the noise. We have to have time that we can hear the voice of God. So the first thing, they got serious. The people got serious about their sin. They laid down the things that represented the past. They laid down the thing that that had really partially gotten them in trouble in the first place that which symbolized the old life. They got serious about their sin. And the next thing, they made a point to get into the presence of God. They went to that tent of meeting where Moses was on the outside of the camp. Number three is in verse 10. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his own tent. They worshipped God. We worship God. If we want to be... In fellowship with God, we must worship God. I, I've, I've sensed that, that Meadowbrook congregation enjoys their worship experience. You can tell. Observers can tell. And you know, our, our worship experience is something we don't do it for show. We do not do it for show. And I want to emphasize that we do not do it for show. But that does not mean people are not watching. Could I ask you tonight, how many times have you looked across the room, here or somewhere else, and you saw a saint of God who was so enraptured by that moment of their personal worship with God, though they might have been 15 pews away from you, in that moment when you saw that person worshiping God, there was something about what you saw that ignited your own spirit of worship in you. That's happened to me here Today, just in a moment, turning and looking here or there and seeing one of you entering into the presence of God. And it was so authentic that the very spirit of that permeated my own heart. I know you know what I'm talking about. Worship. 
when I was a pastor, I, I had to admit, and I admit tonight, that there were times that I didn't want to go to church. I know everybody thinks the pastor gets up first thing on Sunday morning and he's rip-roaring ready to go. Well, that may be true 99% of the time, but there are times even when the pastor doesn't feel like going. Whatever the reason may be, and I had a few of those Sundays that I wished I could stay at home. I heard about the, the guy that his wife couldn't get him out of bed on Sunday morning and she kept nudging, kept calling, kept doing everything and giving him reasons to get up, reason after reason. He said, well, give me one good reason. She said, you're the pastor. You need to be there. God is my witness. I've walked into the sanctuary. Now, this is, this is not many times, but it's, a, it's more than it should have been, I'm sure. And sat down on the front pew, as I've done here today. And the anticipation of the service beginning and knowing that in a few moments I'm going to be standing to open the Word of God. And whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually, I don't feel up to it. And all of a sudden something happens. The choir begins to sing or a wonderful soloist presents a song or somebody gives a testimony or there's a prayer. Whatever component of worship it may be, something begins to happen. And I find a moving of God in my spirit that begins to pick me up and to elevate me. I'll tell you the closest thing that I could say to illustrate this is times that I've had to be on an airplane to go somewhere and and um, you, you uh, board, board the plane as I've done. I remember years ago, one of the I guess it might have been the first time I ever flew and I was going over the ocean, the first time I ever got on an airplane. And it was thundering and raining and the sky, it was day but it was dark, daytime but it was dark, that the sky was just hanging so low and, and I was already scared out of my wits about getting on this thing. You know, you watch all these big people get on and they're carrying 10 pieces of luggage on board and you start calculating if they've got this much in the stowaway bin, how much do they have underneath and then, you, I mean, you start adding up all of the weight and think, there's no way this thing's going to get off the ground. I've always had a tendency to pull up on the seat as though I can help. But I, I, I'm just using this, this one example. It's happened several times over the years, sitting there looking out the window and the rain pounding against the plane. The sky is dark and they rev up the engines and pretty soon something happens. There's, there's a law of aerodynamics. Aerodynamics. The law of aerodynamics. It doesn't defy, it doesn't deny that there is gravity, but it defies the gravity. And it begins to go higher and higher, bouncing its way up through those dark clouds. And all of a sudden, the most beautiful panorama that you've ever seen just comes into play and you're looking not up at the dark clouds but down at the white clouds and and not up at the dark clouds but up at the blue sky and everything's so brilliant and beautiful and free of any of the distress of the storm that's down below and I can tell you that's the closest thing that I can come to using as, as a physical illustration of what worship does when you come to the house of God and things may not be good with life uh, and the burdens may be heavy and you may not feel like being here but it's like getting on that airplane spiritually and pretty soon as the choir is singing and the word of God 
is being preached and things are had the spirit of God is moving you find yourself just being elevated 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 until you penetrate all of that and find yourself in the majestic presence of God does anybody here understand what I'm talking about and that's where these people were they came to worship they they got serious about their sin they entered into the presence of God and they came to worship God. I remember hearing the story about a pastor who didn't, he wasn't on the platform at service time. The, the instrumentalists were playing, the preludes were going, the minister of music was there, ready to go, ready to call people to worship, ready for things to begin. And the pastor, they knew he was in the building, they'd seen him earlier, but they couldn't, he wasn't there. And so they waited, they tarried, they thought, well, we'll give him a minute or two, a minute or two passed, and and finally, after a few minutes, somebody went back to check on him. And as they approached his office door, they could hear him praying. And the story is told that he's kind of hunkered down in a corner over in his study. And he's on his knees before God. And he's saying, oh, God, if you do not go with me, I'm not going. If you do not go with me, I'm not going. If you do not go with me, I'm not going. I'm going to tell you something. Every preacher worth his salt ought to pray that prayer every time he goes to the pulpit. God, if you don't go with me, I have no business going. I can't go. That may be where some of you are tonight. You just need to um, worship God. Number four is found in verse 13. We must seek the Lord. We must seek the Lord. Verse 13, we didn't read this one, but it's here uh, for our message tonight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know uh, that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight and consider this nation is your people. So here we find Moses seeking the Lord, the people seeking the Lord. We must seek the Lord. There's a verse I want to give you from Jeremiah 29 and 13. The Lord said in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I wonder what our passion level is for seeking God, seeking after God. But this is one of the ways back. If you want to know the presence of God in your life, you must search for Him as a man searches for treasure and have that kind of desire and that kind of passion. It cannot be a secondary matter. It must be a primary matter. Number five, we're still talking about steps into the presence of God, how to know the presence of God. We must be serious about the things of God. In verse 15 of Exodus 33, the word says, If your presence does not go up with us, do not bring us up here. And Moses said to God, If you're not going, we don't want to go. We don't want to go. They must be serious about the things of God. And number six, I'll give to you last, we must be separated. We must live separated lives. This is in verse 16. For now, for now then it will be known that your people, now, for now, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? This, this is one of those bargaining moments of Moses that's just quite incredible. So we shall, uh, 
so we shall be separate. That's in the New King James Version, and right in the middle of verse 16. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. This is one, of, if, you're, if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, you're aware that Moses began to kind of dicker with God on God's attitude about what he was going to do to his people at this time. And, and, and his bargaining chip with this was, God, are you, are you really sure you, you want people talking about uh, your people falling into such disrepair. He said, think about what the Egyptians are going to say about, about you if you let this, if you don't go with us, what are people going to think? I mean, man, Moses was a bold guy, but it does say that God spoke to him as a man talks to his friend. But let's put Moses aside a moment. Has anybody here tried to bargain with God before? Anybody else tried to use some of your bargaining leverage with God to get him to do something you want him to do? But Moses landed on it here when he says, So we shall be separate. We shall be separate. We're going to be separate from the other people of the earth. This goes back to a New Testament passage found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2, where it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. That's verse 1. But in verse 2, do you know what verse 2 of Romans 12 says? Do not be what? Conform to this world. But it doesn't even end there. It says, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of you have heard the Barna reports and the Rayner reports. I remember when Barna put this report out. It's probably been 10 years ago now. And um, I, I was doing more studying to teach pastors and church leaders then than actually that I have chance to do now, but I remember preparing a lesson that I was going to teach at the pastor school at Beeson, and I was doing some research on the topic of the impact of the church in today's culture, and I came across this Barner report in which he said that the surveys now show, listen to this, because we're probably 10 years beyond that day. He says, the research now shows that there is no distinguishable difference between Christians and non-Christians in our culture. There's no distinguishable difference between Christians and non-Christians. And I think there's a lot of truth in that statement. But if we want to be in the presence of God and to know His presence and power in our lives, we must live separated lives. And I think this really is at the crux of where the church is hurting today anyway. Because... We are living out our Christian life before a watching world and a waiting world. And there might have been a time that we could talk people into accepting what we're trying to present to them. But I, I know this and you know this. We're living in a day and time now that they don't take everything we say so easily. They want to see the validity and the reality of it in our lives. And sad to say, I think all too often we've tried to export something that doesn't work at home. I remember when Sandra and I first moved to Locust Fort when I became the pastor there, the State Farm insurance man who happened to be a member of the church showed up on the night that we were moving into our pastorium. Nowhere to sit. He literally sat on our boxes to try to sell me insurance. I'll never forget the guy. He was an absolute nuisance. Um, but we bought insurance, so I guess he's, <laughs> he's an effective nuisance. 
But he gave me a lecture. He was always giving me lectures, come to think of it. He was one of those kind. But there were good lectures, come to think of it. I don't want to say too much. I'll get myself in trouble. But um, he made that statement to me. He was talking about how today we try to, as a church, to export to to a watching world what actually doesn't work at home. And he said this, and it stuck in my mind more than his insurance pitch. I remember this. He said, if it does not work at home, don't export it. And sometimes the church is trying to export to a dying world something that really hasn't been proven to work in our own lives. And we need to come back to the place that we're living separated lives unto God. Do the people of God at Meadowbrook agree with that? Amen. Amen. Well, these are steps into the presence of God. How to know the presence of God. At the end of the story, God is with his people. And I'm so thankful for that. I don't think I could go another step another day if I didn't know the presence of God. And I pray that we'll seek his presence tonight. Let's stand together for a word of prayer and then we'll have a song of response and we'll wait for your response. Father, thank you so much for the scriptures that are before us for this great passage regarding the people of God and how they had pushed your patience, tested your patience to the absolute max. But yet when you spoke such solemn and serious words, they became solemn and serious in their response. And they made their way back to you. Father, I'm so thankful that you are a God who welcomes your people back. Even when we've strayed. Even when we've been disobedient. Even when we've done things that are an offense to you. We thank you that as we've sung already tonight that when our sins are great. When our sins are many. Your mercy. Your mercy is more. So much more. For this and so many other blessings we give you thanks. And we pray in Jesus name. Amen. You come together as we sing.